Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. So our preacher today is no stranger to Shades. Dr. Mark Ginolette has been with us several times before. Uh, he's a professor at Beeson Divinity School. Brad and I had the privilege of being students of his. I don't know if he would say the same. Um, Mark has written many books, commentaries. He lectures, preaches regularly. He's a faithful husband and a, a father of four children. Uh, and he's a dear friend. Personally, I think that this man is a genius. Uh, but more important than that, I believe he's genuine. It's those combinations of things that cause me to regularly tell people I could listen to this man talk about Jesus and the Bible all day long. So Mark, thank you for being with us again, and it is our joy to hear the Lord speak through you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. The Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to you all. Uh, keep your Bibles open. I'm, I'm, and before I pray, let me just say, um, an honor. it's always an honor to be with your parish, your church, um, I, I, I've grown this sort of, I don't know, subsidiary, ancillary affection for your congregation. I, I have, whenever students at Beeson or Sanford, I see some of you all over here, I think, um, tell me that they go to Shades, I just smile. I, I, it's, a, it's a gift for me to know in a city like ours that there are such faithful pastors that you have. I'll try not to get emotional about that. As I get older, um, which is happening... I, I get more paternal with my my former students, and really the role. It's kind of funny to see how roles reverse. I spent some time over the past year with with your pastor Brad on my porch talking about theology, 
And I just found myself multiple times in those settings saying, you, you talk more, I, I'll listen. Um, so just a blessing to be here. Let, let me say a second thing as well. Um, a blessing to see faithful wives. I mean, I just, you know, Jordan and I don't know you, but you can, you're funny. I thought they were all funny. Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, that's, that's another, you know, again, I, I, have, I have three boys um, and I find myself praying regularly for wa- godly, faithful wives. It's just, it's such a unique and a, and a, and a precious thing. I know pastorally your church takes this so seriously. Just a funny story as an aside, I was on a flight recently coming from, um, where was I coming from? Anyway, I was coming from somewhere and sat, Oklahoma, sat by this young woman, like 7 a.m., mid-20s, and uh, smiled and hello, and I'm I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I'm like, so where are you from? She's like, I'm from Wyoming. And I said, okay, tell me more. I just was in your state. She says, I'm well, my, my grandfather owns 5,000 contiguous acres in Wyoming. We're ranchers. And she said, you also might be interested to know that my grandfather is a bivocational pastor and rancher. I'm like, okay, tell, tell me more. And, uh, and then she finds out that I'm an Old Testament professor, and so she's in a Bible study in Job. Um, so she's been reading Job. She's in Samuel. She goes to church. She, she does maps. She knows how to ride horses. She does cows and cattle, and I'm like, would you marry one of my boys? I don't know. It's like, is this, is this an awkward thing to ask? I- anyhow, um, it's just, for me, as a father, it's just encouraging. to say, I know that there are fathers who are here to see um, godly women uh, that are in the church and in our lives. So thanks be to God. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, you know, the, the, me- the measure really of a of a, of a Good preacher. This is the worst thing to say before you about to preach a sermon. Uh, but the me- the measure of, of a good preacher, I think, um, historically and even theologically, is their their ability to get out of the way of the text so it can do its work. Th- this is what this is one of those texts that re- really auto generates itself. In other, I don't have to do a lot of hard work as a, as a preacher to release the clutch of what this text is claiming. Um, and, the, and, the, and the claims that this text is making are, are total. In other words, this is not, huh, this is a kind of interesting facet of philosophy or theology or maybe some sort of esoteric corner of Bible study. This text here resides at the core of what makes us human beings and what makes us followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you can't come to terms, or let me rephrase that, if you don't come to terms with this text so that the force of it does not sit on you with the power it intends, then, then you are off the highway um, on some sort of cul-de-sac, lost in terms of your own self-understanding and more importantly, your understanding of God's work in the whole cosmos, everything. Um, so this text is uh, powerful on its own. You heard Jonathan, your pastor, uh, read it so well. It's, it's like just hear the words of this and let its force sit on you. The wisdom, the word of the cross is folly 
to those who are perishing. And notice the phraseology, but to those of us who are being saved, that is clunky. In other words, that, that doesn't make for a great English turn of phrase. Matter of fact, some of you are Englishy people here. I know you're here. Maybe you're studying it at school. Um, you're like, minus two points. A avoid the passive. Uh, you, you use a more active verb if you can. And Paul's like, well, it might be bad English. Paul didn't do English, but it might be bad English. Um, but it's great and important theology. For those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God on display. Um, a, a quote is often attributed to C.S. Lewis. I can't find anywhere that he said it, so we'll just say someone said that when the world in mass is heading toward the edge of a cliff, that those that are going in the opposite direction appear to be mad. So when the whole world in mass is heading in a certain direction, those who are walking away from the danger to those that are in mass moving toward death or peril, the people walking in the other direction appear absolutely out of their minds mad. That, that's the, the frame and the force of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The wisdom of God has the ability to annihilate the wisdom of this world. And the wisdom of God appears on the surface to be foolishness on display. The cross to those who are perishing to those who are heading to the cliff is moronic and it's foolish. And let's, let's be, be clear about this and honest with ourselves. Who wants to be foolish in the eyes of the world? Or, or who wants to be a fool? Um, many of us know the angst of what it is to be from a certain background or a certain sort of intellectual background. And you want to make sure that in some settings that you don't come across looking like you don't know what you're talking about. Great scene in a Woody Allen movie, Match Point. Um, I don't commend this movie, but I, I did see it. Um, it a young, lower-brow, lower-class young man who's got some economic skills is making his way up in the banking world in London, and he's engaged to marry a woman from an aristocratic family. So this is a smart kid. Um, he's upwardly mobile, he's engaged to a, a pretty important daughter, and yet he's sitting at the dinner table with this upper brow family, and they're having a kind of exchange and conversation that he cannot keep up with. I mean, they're, they, they're, they're all revealing the kind of depth of their learning, and he's just sitting there lost, and there's a scene in this movie, I'll never forget it, a scene where this young man is in his bed at night all by himself, no music, no uh, dialogue, and he's reading a Cambridge companion to Dostoevsky. I love that as a teacher, right? He's not reading Crime and Punishment or The Gambler or The Brothers Karamazov. He's not reading Dostoevsky. He's reading the Cambridge companion to Dostoevsky. And, the, and, and nothing is said, but you know what's going on. He doesn't care about Dostoevsky a bit. He wants to find a couple of intelligent lines that he can use tomorrow night at the dinner party to make himself look a little bit better to this family that he's trying to break into. All of us know that kind of insecurity. And the gospel, the word of the cross, punctures that right in the core of what it means for us to be human. If you're not willing, by God's grace, to embrace the foolishness of God 
and to take on the scorn of the world, then you've not come to terms yet with Jesus and what Jesus is claiming on you. That's, that's what he's doing. He's claiming something about you. Um, and it's salvation, it's hope, it's grace, and yet to the world, it's absolute foolishness. Look at how the text describes this. This is remarkable. And this is why it's so simple. There are two kinds of people. Don't, don't, don't you hate that when you're at dinner parties and someone says, there are two kinds of people in the world, right? People who talk about two kinds of people and those who don't. I'm, I'm joking. Um, but Paul here is being a bit reductionistic, but he is being reductionistic, what we would say is at, the, at a fundamental level of the way in which God views and understands his own created world. There's two kinds of people, those that are perishing and those who are, notice the language, being saved. There, there's not middle ground for Paul. There aren't other categories. It's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And, and I will be the first to confess to you, as, as someone who lives in an academic world that is so often removed from reality, I get it and can, and can, can take it for what it is. Um, it's not my natural instinct to walk around the world with those categories up and running in my mind. But every once in a while, and some of you are given the gift of evangelism, God bless you, I, I wish I had more of it, but every once in a while, the weight of it does settle on me. And for whatever reason, it tends to be in airports. Right? You're walking through an airport. If you're a people watcher, airports are like, you know, Mecca, Right? I mean, it's just all kinds of people moving. You see frenetic activity. You can watch a husband and a wife quarrel. That's always fun for me. Um, you know, so you, you, just, you can see all of humanity on display. You can also see when you're in the air the smallness of the world. I was reminded of this in a recent flight here. Like, I live right under Vulcan um, in the south side of Birmingham, right near Dreamland Barbecue. We joke with people that we get to live in an old house, and we don't have to go far to get our drugs. It's kind of a win-win. Um, but I live in an old house right underneath Vulcan. You, when you, in, in, in the heart of the city, when you take off from the airport in Birmingham and that plane banks to the west, and then you get to look out the left window and can see Vulcan and Red Mountain and the city, and all of a sudden it begins to look like a game of life or a game of risk, and everything becomes small before you, and then you enter back into it and it becomes large, all of a sudden you realize this world is small, but it's teeming with people. And the people who are walking around here thinking about their taxes, thinking about the bills that they have to pay, aging parents, children, whatever it means for us to be human and the struggles of being human and all of us wrestling with that, the Bible says at the deepest level, these are people who are either perishing or being saved. That's who they are. Um, and Paul wants you to know that for those who are being saved, those people in that category are those who have embraced and thrown themselves at the foolishness of the cross. It makes up, down, and down, up. I embrace it. I throw myself at it. God's revealed the very mysteries and the power of the world to those who are being saved. And don't you love of that language, that character of being saved? What does it mean for it to be in the passive? Your salvation, is this not so rich? Your salvation, your ultimate 
eternal security. The fact that you can rest, that your relationship with the living God, the God that the Old Testament describes as a God of fire that can consume the world in his presence, that that God you are safe with, you can rest under the refuge of his wings with, not as an act of self-discovery, not as an act of turning in toward the self, but actually being released from the self to recognize I'm not saving myself, I'm being saved. Well, how are you being saved? Because God took that which was dead and made it alive again. Now, we're getting into sort of some tricky theological territory here. I'll leave it on the surface. But dead people don't do a lot of decision-making. Right? Again, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor. I don't want to claim expertise beyond my own pay grade. But from what I understand, dead people are not animate, they're not talking, and they're not making lots of decisions for themselves. Um, dead people, to be alive again, need the operative work of the Spirit of God to make them and animate them and bring them to life. What do you see, Ezekiel, out here in the middle of this open field? Tell me what you see, Ezekiel. Well, there's, there's just a valley of bones, all these bones together, just strewn in this field. Okay, Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. What? Okay, I will. I'll prophesy to the bones. What does Ezekiel do in chapter 37? Begins to preach to the bones. And all of a sudden, while he preaches, the bones, and you talk about a great Thanksgiving, I mean, a, a Halloween sermon. Ezekiel 37, right? It's like you can just see the skeletons clacking together. You can hear, there's an audibility Ezekiel 37, you can hear those dry bones clacking together, clack, 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 clack. And then you have all these skeletons there in the, in the, in the valley. What do you see now, uh, Ezekiel? A valley of skeletons, nothing, inanimate. He preaches again, now flesh, muscle, sinew, uh, hair, uh, the nose grows back. They have ears now. But they're zombies. They're just inanimate corpses there. And then the Lord says something so remarkable to Ezekiel. He says, now prophesy to the Spirit. And he prophesies to the Spirit, and the Spirit runs down on that inanimate group of now made alive dead bones, and they come to life as a force for the army of God. And what does he tell Ezekiel? I will do that with my people. You are on your own dead bones. And if you're embracing the cross today as feeble, can I use the language of Isaiah 42, even if you're a flickering flame or a bruised reed, if you're a bruised reed and a flickering flame and you're struggling in your faith and you're struggling with your internal life or you're battling that sin that just won't seem to let go, even in that, if you're embracing the cross and holding on to its promises, even in your fallenness, which we all do, you're only doing that because the Spirit of God is animating you to do it. It's not an act of self-achievement. And that's why Paul says at the end of this long reading that we had today, if you want to boast about something, you boast in the Lord. Look at what the Lord has done. He's allowed me, by his grace, to believe the unbelievable and to put all of my hope and trust in it. Two people, those that are being saved, those that are perishing. Notice something else in this text here. We see the distinction between folly and wisdom. Wisdom and true knowledge find their source 
in God's speech to us. That's where true wisdom is to be found. Um, Think about even a book like Proverbs. Some of you may be taking your Bible Foundations class. You get to a book like Proverbs, and you're like, oh, my lands. Proverbs is wild. Uh, Answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Or what about that one verse, train up a child in his own way, and in the end he will not depart from it. And everyone wants to say, until they do. Um, you know, so w- what do we do with all this wisdom? And then you're reading a little bit, and you find out, oh my goodness, Solomon borrowed major chunks of his own wisdom literature here from an Egyptian named Aminamope. That's, that's, you get the, it's like, that's, uh-oh, 101. Like he borrowed from who? an Egyptian wise person a thousand years older than Solomon. And the point of it is, you find wisdom wherever it can be found and deploy it. But Proverbs 1.7 makes the wisdom tradition of the Bible different from everything that surrounds it. And what's Proverbs 1.7? Something that you parents pray for your children. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, wisdom is not a neutral category. All the wisdom, the the good, sound, solid advice of living well in this world must be filtered through the lens of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the means by which I discriminate between that which is useful and wise and that which is not. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here as well. Wisdom finds its source in the revealing character of God. To know well is to bank and to rely on. On Revelation, I was I was stunned by something um, in my study recently in a book in the book of Isaiah. Um, I, Isaiah the prophet, well worth your time. I just got to say, he, he, you know, as, as one of my colleagues would uh, would say, uh, Isaiah made the cut for a reason. I mean, he, that that is a fantastic prophecy. And Isaiah, for those of you who've done some study in journalism, will will know this phrase. Isaiah does not bury the lead. I mean, he, he lets you know in verse 2 what he's after. Um, children have I reared, but they have rebelled against me. That's what he says. And then he goes on to say, rebellion is defined by, are you ready for this? They're not knowing the Lord. So knowledge and wisdom and understanding is linked to salvation, hope, and truth. And the opposite of that is rebellion. Think about that. To be in rebellion is to be in a place where you do not know and understand properly. Paul is speaking the same language here. To know well, to understand truth at a level that goes beyond your surface experience of reality requires an embracing of God's wisdom revealed in the cross and coming from his own direct Revelation and speaking voice. That's the claim that the Apostle Paul is making here. uh, Third thing. What time am I supposed to be done? Like 11? All right, I got 10 minutes. Um, I'm I'm in the Anglican world, so we like short sermons. Uh, And you do long sermons here, don't you? That's that's okay. That's okay. Um, Remember, Jonah... Most effective sermon in, in, in the, probably the history of the Old Testament, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's a short sermon, very, very powerful, but we'll leave that to the side. Um, 
Third thing, the power of God. Look at what the the Apostle Paul says here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That language there, power of God, should send a lightning bolt into our midst this morning. That's apocalyptic language. He's quoting Isaiah here, the next verse. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's end of the world language that the Apostle Paul is using here. What is the power of God? The power of God is God's saving might to silence the nations and the enemies of God. The power of God is God's End of the world ability to silence the nations, to leave them gobsmacked in his presence, and to thwart and to condemn his enemies. And Paul wants you to know the way in which God reveals and unleashes that end of the world apocalyptic power into the universe is in that one who's hanging between heaven and hell on a cross. That's how he does it. That's how he disarms the enemies of God. That's how he brings the nations to silence. That's how he brings an end to sin and human pride. How does he diffuse and bring an end to sin and human pride? By the display of the humility of God. God humbles himself and in so doing, and the cross silences the pride of all the nations. Revelation grounds true knowledge. We see the power of God here revealed in the cross. Jews, they want a sign. They want lightning bolts and fireworks. Greeks want wisdom, syllogisms, philosophical acuity. And Paul wants you to know the cross of Christ is both of those things. It is God's power and it is God's wisdom. All right, can I say just a few things and then I'll I'll, I'll be quiet. Number, number one, just kind of reflection on this text. So much more here. Number one, as Christians, we can never grow tired of the gospel. I'm just going to say it one more time because it's, it's, we, we talk Christianese all the time. Right? We know how to do Christian talk. And we use the language of the gospel all the time. Paul is here giving you a display of the gospel. You want what I, what I think is one of the best Single verses in the Bible describing the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Is this not rich? It's about as good as it gets. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us or to us. Well, what is Jesus for you and for me? He's God's wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our holiness. He's our redemption. I mean, do do you hear the language there? In other words, every term that you can use to describe what it means to be redeemed by the God of the universe, being righteous, being holy, having true wisdom, being redeemed from bondage and slavery, Paul wants you to know here at the end of chapter 1, all of that is found in your union with Jesus Christ. You want to know who you are? You are, and Paul says this so many times, in Christ. If uh, so I see some gray hair in here. If you, if you were from my day and maybe before, remember the, K, come on, come clean you older people here. K. Arthur Bible studies, 
Yes, ma'am. I see that hand. All right. Um, you know, the K. Arthur Bible study is an inductive approach to Bible study where you have your Bible and you get a little marker, right? I mean, I, I think it's great. Um, I, I did this in high school. I can remember. got my K. Arthur inductive study Bible, um, NIV from my world. That was a little, little racy. I got the NIV. And, um, and I had a yellow marker. And my first study, I'll never forget it, was the book of Colossians. And I just started then. I said, I think, I think what I'll do is I'll highlight every time the Apostle Paul says either in him or in Christ. Highlight, highlight. By the end of it, what do you have in the book of Colossians? Like a pastiche of yellow. The whole thing seems to be Paul saying, you're in Christ, already seated in the heavenly realm. Don't set your affections on things below. Set your affections on things above where you already are in Christ. Can can I encourage you with something? Uh, um, We're in a moment. Oh, I'm saying this in front of Brad, so i got to be careful because he knows this stuff better than I do. If we're in a moment where we are at a complete loss in the West in terms of coming to some understanding of what it means to be, what it means to be human, what it means to be a self, where, and boy, here's the buzzword, I feel for you younger people on this, where our identity is truly to be found, is is my identity an act of self-discovery and determination? Um, We are in a moment where selfhood is in crisis. If you're a Christian, Paul wants you to know, let me tell you what your selfhood ultimately is. You are in Christ. And by the way, think about this. Not just in some abstract theological ease language, but Paul wants you to know you are really in Christ Right now, do you know that your salvation rests on the fact that Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, ascended, raised and ascended, is with the Father by the Spirit now in some resurrected human corpuscular form? It goes, there's a lot that we cannot say about that. We're moving into the realm of the mystery, but Jesus is a raised and glorified human right now. And your salvation rests on that. You don't get into heaven without him being a human right now. And Paul wants you to know that your true self is in him. He's wisdom, he's your sanctification, he's your justification, he's your redemption. You're already seated in him. That's your being. That's who you are. So you, you, can, can I simplify? It's probably too simplistic. So what's the Christian life? The Christian life is, hey, God calls you by the Spirit to be what you already are. Enter into, by his grace, what you already are completely, eschatologically, in the future and now, right now in Jesus Christ. I, I say this often to um, joking with my wife. You know, I, when we die and in the resurrection of the dead, we get to meet our true selves. Like our true, your true self, raised and glorified, absent the debilitating power of sin, is waiting on you already in Jesus to be revealed at the final day. And I often joke, my wife cannot wait to meet that guy. I mean, he is so much better than the guy she's stuck with right now, right? She can't wait. Um, that's the gospel. The gospel word is that Jesus has given you everything and claims everything and true freedom, and you ready for this, power 
is found in that identity. Last thing, and then I'll be done. Last thing. Paul's also really recalibrating for us here what we understand by power. Boy, this is such a huge topic in our own day, and I won't wade into it. But power, we have a lot of language today about power. Paul is making a distinction between power over and power for something. That's a very important distinction. I mean, you don't have to read at all in the history of the West very long to know that power corrupts, and what are these, you know, the little syllogisms we use, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we know it's true. I mean, it goes, some of you maybe are reading Plato in your, in your uh, core courses at the Sanford. Um, Plato talked about the ring, right, that gets picked up by Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. You put on the ring of power and even sweet Bilbo Baggins, little sweet Bilbo Baggins with his, with his fuzzy feet um, can turn devilish with the ring of power on his finger. None of us can escape that. It's a recognition of power over and that that power can corrupt. And, and God, through Christ in the gospel, is revealing a completely different form of power. Not power over, but power for. Another, I think, biblical term for this would be freedom. Real freedom. Freedom from what? The tyranny of my own self. Freedom from the tyranny of the opinions of others. Not for my own self-aggrandizement, but for the glory of God and for the love of our neighbor. That's the kind of power that gospel power unleashes, that kind of display. When the world is running to a cliff, people who talk in different ways about their identity, about their being, about the cross, about the wisdom of God, they will look like fools. And we are in a moment where the West, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but here I go, is becoming more secularized, and I actually don't think that's the right term anymore. It's a rediscovery of ancient paganism that's taking a hold of the West. And the call for Christians is to embrace the gospel and the moronic character of the gospel and the courage and the hope that is required to say, he is Lord, he's died for our sins, that's the wisdom of God on display. Lord, set these things on our hearts, seal them by your truth and by your word. Lord, guard us and help us, Lord, from the tyranny of our own selves, from, Lord, the desire to be affirmed and embraced by the powers of the world. Give us the real joy that comes from knowing that I'm completely in Christ and that freedom frees me to love you and to love our neighbor. in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all.